All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, we'll go to Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there are uh, some black hardbacks underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip with us. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. We are starting a new sermon series uh, called Family Portraits this morning. And so we're going to spend five weeks looking at uh, the core values and the mission statement that we have here at the church. Uh, we just finished a series on Jesus' resurrection. When these five weeks are up, we'll start a new book study. Okay, so we'll walk through the book of Daniel, which I'm pretty excited about. We'll start that mid-June. Uh, and that'll go through the summer and probably on into the fall a little bit. And then probably on into the next fall, if you're familiar with how <laughs> slow this book study is going to go sometimes. But I'm really looking forward to Daniel, a lot of good stuff for us there. Um, but that would be a good time to kind of uh, take a kind of a break between um, kind of topical or, or exegetical sermon series. And just think about who we are as a church and who we want to be as a church uh, going forward. Um, we have a mission statement here at the church, and the mission statement is to glorify God. By making disciple, making disciples of Jesus Christ. To glorify God, to bring him praise by making disciples who then make disciples uh, of Jesus Christ. And uh, to get to that mission statement, the church has four core values, four traits that we want to embody, that we want to be characteristic of us, both as a people and as individuals. They are accepting unconditionally. That's core value number one. Then trusting God serving selflessly, and teaching the next generation. And those are kind of the, the core values that we think will take us to our goal of making disciples who make disciples of Jesus. Uh, a few years ago, I was in a biology class. So I was an undergrad uh, at HBU, and I was in a biology class. And if you know me well, you know my biology is not my thing. Okay, that's not my forte. Uh, and I'm in this biology class, just struggling to get through it, okay? And one day, uh, the lecture was on traits and, and kind of genes and DNA and I've already exhausted my knowledge, okay, on the issue. Uh, but the teacher was going through different genetic traits that different genes, DNA things, and again, I don't know, that pass on, right, in families. So it goes, moves on from the parent down below, like dominant or recessive traits, stuff like that. And she was listing off certain things that if the parents have it, it goes on down to the kids. And one of the things she listed off was a widow's peak, okay? Now, I have a widow's peak, okay? It's not a receding hairline. My hair just kind of goes like that, widow's peak. Got made fun of it a lot, okay, throughout my life. Adam's family, ah, I get it, okay? Uh, had the widow's peak. And she mentioned that one or both of your parents have to have a widow's peak. And I'm like, oh, okay here, because neither of my parents have a widow's peak. So I kind of raised my hand, and she was like, what's going on? I said, let me get this right. One or both of your parents have to have, like, they have to express that trait. They have to have an actual widow speak for you to have a widow speak. And she's like, yeah, that's, that's what I said. Why not you pay attention? I was like, well, I'm just confused because neither of my parents, like my biological parents, neither of them have a widow speak. And so the whole class started kind of giggling nervously. Like, we were there when he found out he was adopted. You know, like, this is, <laughs> this is going to be really awkward, but kind of priceless. And you can see the teacher kind of start to, like, clam up a little bit. And she starts backtracking big time. Uh, so... Well, I mean, this is just putting it real simply, okay? There's some different things going on. There could always be mutations and the genes and different things that happen, et cetera, et cetera. And so she, she stepped back to probably at least one of your grandparents has it. In some way, it kind of made its way through the trail, but didn't get expressed in your parents. It's unusual, but maybe it could happen. And I'm like, I don't think. I don't, I don't know for sure, but I don't think any of my grandparents have it. So I called my mom up after class. Hey, you or dad don't have widow's peaks, right? She's like, no, we don't. And I was like, do any of our grandparents have widow's peaks? Any of the four? Because I don't think so. Why are you asking? Because I'd like to know who my real parents are. <laughs> and this kind of could become a running joke in our family, you know, around Christmas time. What do you want for Christmas? I'd like to meet my real parents, see what they're like, see if they're proud of me. Um, I have a theory, okay? So when I was a little kid, my grandpa, when my parents moved into a two-story house for the first time, my grandfather was really upset about it. He thought that we would fall down the stairs and die. 
And I was probably like a year or two years old. And sure enough, on the first weekend, I fell down the stairs and busted my head open. Okay? And I think at that moment, the real Mike Skinner might have passed away. And then I was replaced. Okay? <laughs> That's how I made my way into the family. My parents ended up adopting a few years ago. And so that just kind of increased the whole situation. I'm like, well, y'all are really good at this adopting thing. Looks like y'all have done this before. Uh, but there, there is this thing, right? There are these traits that different families have. Uh, and they cause you to look alike. They even cause you to act the same. I mean, I'm, I'm astonished as um, a teacher and someone who just works with youth, how much kids look like their parents. And not just physical traits. I mean, that's true. You look like your parents oftentimes. But down to, I mean, if you really know a kid really well, and then you meet their parent for the first time, down to facial expressions and ways they hold their, their head and hold their shoulders and, and faces they make and reactions they make. I mean, it's, it's nature, right? I mean, it's the genetic similarity, but it's also this, this is all you've seen your whole life. And this is how you act. This is how you move. This is how you talk. This is the cadence you speak with. I mean, it's really striking to me. Um, families have this, this remarkable sense of similarity between them. And, and family is one of the dominant metaphors that we like to think of the church as from the scriptures. We're a body. We're a family. We're interconnected. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, the scriptures would say. And so these core values, these four core values we have, we, we like to think of them as kind of family traits, okay? This is what we want to be genetically passed on among ourselves. This is what we want to be known for. We want someone to be able to see these traits in us and go, they must go to FCQ. That's how people at First, First Colony Christian Church act, okay? Accepting unconditionally, serving selflessly, trusting God, and teaching the next generation. So this morning we're going to get started uh, with the core value of accepting unconditionally, okay? And the kind of big idea here is that we want to be a church that freely loves all people so that all people may find the life that's available in Christ. We want to be a church that freely loves all people so that all people may find the love, the life that's available in Christ. And kind of the key verse for this core value is Romans fifteen seven, which reads, Accept one another then as Christ has accepted you. To the praise of God. Accept one another then as Christ has accepted you to the praise of God. And so you think, how has Christ accepted us? Well, he did it without conditions. He did it in this free act of love. And this, this grace, we call it. This gift. This pure, unconditional gift. Romans 5 would say, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Right? He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't wait for us to figure things out. He loves us. He finds us. He dies for us. And he saves us. He meets us where we are and then transforms us. Ephesians 2.5 would say, While we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, Christ makes us alive. Christ has radically loved us. We've received this kind of scandalous grace from Christ. I know in my own life, I mean, when, when I became a Christian, when Jesus kind of found me, when the Spirit started working in my life, I was just a miserable human being. And I didn't do anything to deserve that. I didn't do anything to earn that. I received that love freely. And was able to grow and, and, and mature in that love. And the scriptures say we are supposed to love others. We're supposed to accept others the way that we have been accepted in Christ. And we've been accepted very well. And so we should accept others very well as well. Notice that uh, this idea, accepting unconditionally, it is what you'd say like it's Christological and missiological. Which simply means it's based on Christ. Okay, as Christ has accepted us, so we accept other people. And there's a mission behind it. There's a goal. There's an end. We accept other people so that God would be praised. Jesus accepts us, right? He saves us. He loves us. He shows us this radical grace with a goal in mind that we might find life, that we might join him in praising the Father that we would be brought into the salvation that God is offering the world. Um, now, unfortunately, this is not what 
most Christians are known for. This kind of unconditional acceptance, this kind of radical love. Um, I think if you were to survey a lot of people just off the street, one of the things you'd find when people are talking about um, Christians is that they are judgmental. Okay? They are picky, picky people. Right? There's just lots of things they don't like. They know what they don't like, and they stand for it, right? I mean, even think about the church itself, how many divisions there are in the church. I don't know if this ever, like, kept you up at night, just kind of wondering how did that even happen. But, I mean, this is people on the same team, right? I mean, we're all on the same team, worshiping the same, the same God, and we ourselves have split off into thousands of different groups and drawn these big fences and said, you're over there, we're over here. You're on the outside, we're on the inside. Christians are known for what they hate often. They're known usually for what they exclude. We've, as Christians, I think, put up a whole lot of conditions to have full fellowship with us, to really receive our love and our acceptance. You have to act like we act. You have to think like we think. You have to like the kind of music that we like. You have to have the same political views that we have. You have to have the same sins that you struggle with that we have. Right? You can't make us nervous in that regard. If we're not used to struggling with that kind of sin, well, it's just going to be hard for you to find full acceptance, full fellowship here with us. You have to believe the right things, right? You have to have the exact right wording in your doctrinal statement, or we'll kick you out, right? We won't fellowship with you. I mean, even think about, so this past semester, I was uh, doing a lot of historical theology and, and reading some primary sources on, on Luther and Calvin talking about justification by faith, right? And we've kind of transformed that. We've talked about that here a little bit to say that faith is what justifies you, and that's not the case. Even back in the Reformers, faith itself is a gift, Paul would say in Ephesians, it's part of the grace that God gives you. Jesus doesn't accept you because you were able to formulate the sinner's prayer just right. Does that make sense? He's not up there like, oh, I really want you to get it so I can love you. I'm a sinner. Please come into my heart. Yes, here's my love. Right? No, he, he died for you. He raised for your justification. Even the faith you have to express your belief in him, your trust in him, is a gift that was given to you out of the love that he has for you. Um, so too often, I think, Christians have built up these fences, these boundaries. And we don't accept people the way that Christ accepted us. We don't show them the same love. We don't show them the same grace. Um, I think there's a twofold effect when we do this. Number one, I think it makes us not look like Jesus, which for a Christian is always a bad thing, right? We're on the same page there. If you are looking and acting and talking and, and being a kind of person that doesn't look like the person Jesus was in the Gospels, you've missed the mark. This is who we're called to be. This is who we're called to emulate, who we're called to imitate. Um, and then two, it, it hinders our mission, okay? When you cannot accept someone, when you cannot show someone love without conditions, you lose almost all ability to influence them and to really speak into their lives. And so I've learned that working with kids. If a kid does not think you trust, if the kid does not trust you and doesn't think you have their best interest at heart, they're not going to listen to you. I mean, they could care less about what you have to say. It's only when a student really knows deep down at the core of their being, you want what's best for them, that they would ever be willing to listen to you say anything about maybe needing to change something or move somewhere or, or get rid of kind of a part of their life or do anything like that. When, when you and I erect all these fences and these boundaries, when we're known for what we hate instead of what we love, it, it really hinders our mission. Um, and so I want us to look at Jesus, okay, here in the Gospels in, in Matthew 9. I want to kind of take his life and his ministry as a cue uh, for our life and our ministry as we look to accept people unconditionally. There are some pitfalls to this idea, okay? On both sides, I think there are pitfalls uh, with accepting unconditionally. I think some Christians never get far enough in accepting others. And so they say, God hates you, we hate you, to a lot of people. And then other Christians might go all the way on the other side and say, 
well, who can really say anything that's right or wrong, right? So we're all equal, everything's equal, there's no morality, anything like that, right? I think there's a middle way where you can accept other people and still bring life, still seek life in Christ, still live the kind of life that God has laid out for us to live. And I think Jesus models that for us. So Matthew 9 is where we'll pick it up, okay? Matthew chapter 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. Really powerful scene here in Matthew. Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Very interesting story. You'd like some more details, right? I mean, it seems kind of dramatic for some stranger to walk up and say, follow me. And for someone who had the whole life, right, and the family and all these kind of things, a career, to be like, well, I have nothing better to do, right? Here I go. And he just gives up everything, right, and follows him. Bonhoeffer would call this the, like, indescribable authority that Jesus has. I mean, he just exudes life and power and authority. People instantaneously trust him. And he comes and says, follow me. And, and grown man stands up and goes, where are we going? Right? And Matthew calls, uh, responds to the call of Jesus. Uh, verse 10, we see another scene as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, uh, presumably maybe Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So now we're having a meal. Okay, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees have a very big problem with this scene, the fact that Jesus is eating with these kind of people. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. One of my best friends in high school, um, when Jesus found him, it was these words actually in Matthew. And he says, I just read those and it all just kind of clicked for me. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means, Jesus says to the Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Interesting statement. He actually is quoting this from the prophets. The prophets are making a very interesting statement because it seems like God right, does desire sacrifice in the Old Testament. Um, but perhaps they had missed the, the point there. For I came, Jesus says, not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I don't think many people have really understood how scandalous this scene is. Okay, Jesus' life is a life of controversy. He's constantly in controversy with all kinds of different people um, because he's really, the controversy is the fact that he just bucks all kinds of rules that God's people had put into place. Um, he's constantly breaking down boundaries that were erected. So even if you look around this passage, um, just in the small little section, Jesus will, uh, his disciples won't wash the way they're supposed to wash in these ritual washings before they eat and they get in trouble for that. Um, Jesus and his disciples don't fast the way they're supposed to fast. Jesus and disciples don't do things on the Sabbath they're supposed to do on the Sabbath. All these different rules and laws that the Jewish people had kind of built up around um, trying to protect their holiness and protect their status as God's people, Jesus seems kind of cavalier about. He kind of breaks it down if it stands in the way of him reaching and seeking the lost and those who are sick. If it, if it gets in the way of his mission to go find those um, who need to be called, those who are sick and lost, um, those who who need to be healed, those who need to, to hear the physician. Um, and in this passage, uh, you see this kind of table fellowship ministry that Jesus has. So this is one of Jesus' kind of hallmarks of his ministry. Uh, he has this like dining ministry. Sounds like a good idea to me, okay? Eat and serve God. That's the best of all worlds. Um, and, and when Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, this is one of the most scandalous, shocking, offensive things he could have done 
back in this time period. So often we miss, or we kind of skip over this, okay? And we think Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners is kind of like if you or I were to eat with someone who struggles with alcoholism and just drinks too much every now and then, or someone who maybe cusses too much, right? Or someone who has a lust problem. It's just, right, we're all sinners. These people had some sins going on. Jesus ate with them. The Pharisees must have been these really hardcore perfectionists, um, but Jesus eats with them, kind of rubs under their skin. And that's not what's happening at all when Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. Um, Jesus is radically crossing a boundary of holiness when he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. So sinners, um, back in the Gospels in the first century, this word is a very technical term. It would have been used either for one or two things. People who were sick in some way, some kind of deformity that made them unclean. They were considered unclean, so they were not allowed to go into the temple. They were not allowed to receive God's presence and his healing. They had to be separated from the people. They built up a fence and said, you're on the outside. Apparently, God doesn't like you very much. He gave you this deformity, this sickness. Or it was a term used for someone who had a career that was very unsavory. Again, not like a private little personal sin that they struggled with. This would have been a very public, like, bad career. Okay? Like, like really, really bad stuff. Okay? This is a notorious, nasty sinner, um, these kind of sinners. They didn't think like we thought, which is like everyone's a sinner, right? There was a certain class of people who you kept away from and said they are sinners. They're not allowed on the inside here. They are far away from God. God hates them, and we hate them. And then there were tax collectors. And often the way that tax collectors get sold to us is that they're people who just took a little bit more money than they were supposed to, right? They made kind of a fortune, and that made people upset naturally, right? We don't like the IRS. We don't like when they take a lot of money from us. I had a new tax bracket, okay, this tax season, and so I paid my fair share into the system this year, okay, it was a new experience for me, right? And so I might meet an IRS agent and be like, hey, I kind of like you because I had a real big hit, right, in my money because of kind of the work that you're doing. Well, that's missing the boat by a mile and a half to what tax collectors were, okay? So remember, in the first century, Rome, the, the empire of Rome is occupying Israel. They're oppressing Israel. Israel is, in a sense, slaves to the Roman Empire. And Rome ruled almost the whole known world this time. And the only way you do that is by having a huge, ruthless military. Sometimes we romanticize Rome and make kind of this sexy time period, right? It was a brutal, brutal time period where Rome would come in if you wanted to, to, to talk back to them. And they would crucify hundreds, if not thousands, in a day without thinking about it and then leave with those people hanging right outside your city. They were in charge. Now, the only way you fund that kind of an army is through taxes. Lots and lots of taxes. And the only way you can collect that much tax is if you hire other people to do it for you. You hire foreigners, people who are living in that country. So here's what Matthew is. Here's who Matthew is. He's a Jewish man who belonged nationally and religiously to Israel. He's a Jewish man who voluntarily, you would have had to purchase this right. He voluntarily purchased the right to take taxes from his people to fund the army that's coming in and crucifying them. He is a national and religious traitor. The Jewish people hate Matthew and tax collectors like him because they literally had betrayed everything that was sacred. They did not deserve any mercy. They deserved to be hung up and killed. And they thought they were probably the first people God would kill when he came back. When the day of the Lord arrived, these tax collectors were the first ones. They're worse than the foreign Romans because they're Jewish people who abandoned the cause and joined the Roman, the Roman side. And they're helping Romans oppress them. So possibly Matthew's neighbor down the street 
had her husband crucified when the Roman army came in. And when she sees Matthew, she doesn't see someone who takes a little bit more money than he should. She sees someone who's betrayed her nation. She sees someone who's betrayed everything that's holy and sacred to God. She sees someone who is complicit in the death of the people she loves. Tax collectors were evil, evil, evil people. And when Jesus comes to start the kingdom, when he comes to express God's love and and start the project of God's salvation, these are the people Jesus goes and hangs out with. And the Pharisees, the people who've been trying to be pure, who've been trying to really follow things as good as they know how, are really upset about this. I mean, I really don't think we've, we've fully explored how shocking this is. And what the ramifications of this is um, to how we view Jesus, how we view even our situation, how we view what would happen if Jesus was physically present on the earth right now. I mean, I really, at night when I'm up, I have this haunting thought that a large part of the church, at least in the West, would probably crucify Jesus again if he was here right now. Because these religious people get so upset about it. And we think we're not like those religious people. Right? We think we've solved the problems that they were in. I just don't think we have. I think we would be just as upset with who Jesus went after. Think of right now, think of the most heinous person you can imagine. Maybe it's someone you know. Maybe it's sitting next to you, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just like a, a public figure. Okay? Maybe it's someone that you've heard about who's on the news or someone in history. The most heinous person that you can think of. And then I want you to think of what Jesus is feelings toward them are. We might think naturally Jesus probably hates them as much as we do. Jesus probably wants to see them punished as much as we do. In fact, probably more than we do. Surely Jesus, the Son of God, has more sense of holiness and more sense of of vengeful, rightful wrath towards evil things than we do. And then imagine the suggestion the Gospels put forward that Jesus would instead of hating them or killing them, want to go eat with them. I think that's the picture the Gospels present to us. And I think the way that unnerves us right now is what happened to the Pharisees. Are you kidding me? You're going to go hang out with these people? I mean, this is is one of the things that gets him killed. He crosses the wrong boundaries here. He crosses the wrong boundaries. Think of yourself at your worst moment. When the shame of the world is crushing in on your soul. And you think, surely there's no way God loves me. You think if Jesus was here right now, he'd be so upset. He'd be so disappointed in me. And then think of him instead going, you want to go grab a bite to eat? Let's go hang out. Let's go talk. I mean, when Jesus has these meals, you've got to, I mean, he's, this is not a, a, what we consider a judgmental meal, right? This is not Jesus having like an intervention, like a confrontation, right? Listen, you're a sinner. <laughs> a really bad one. There's a reason all these people hate you. You should really stop doing these things. I mean, we should think of, of, of kind of this enjoyable, friendly type atmosphere. Jesus throughout the gospel is what we call an attractive holiness. Sinners, horrible, horrible people, love to be around Jesus. And it didn't take away from his holiness. But he was able to, to pursue those people. The Pharisees have big, big problems with this. There will be controversy throughout Jesus' lifetime about who he eats with uh, and why he's, he's doing it. I mean, in the ancient world, eating with someone was how you identified with people. Jesus read a, a uh, not Jesus, Jessica read a proverb uh, a few weeks ago, right? I saw them eat and I knew who they were. In the ancient world this is a Jewish proverb. You knew who a person was by who they ate with. Remember the Jewish and Gentile problems in the first century was all about can we eat with them? 
Jewish Christians didn't know whether they should eat with Gentile Christians because that would be associating with them. And who does Jesus go eat with? It's these horrible, horrible, don't miss it. They are evil people and they probably rightly deserve to be killed in public in shame. And Jesus goes to their house to eat with them. And the Pharisees have big problems with this. Lots of problems. Um, Jesus also, I mean, he, so the Pharisees, you've got to be kind of sympathetic to them, okay? They had certain ways that tax collectors or sinners could become part of God's people again, could become pure. The problem with the Pharisees was, I mean, it was just, they built up these huge loopholes you had to jump through, okay, to go back. Uh, so one of the things they get upset about with Jesus is when he tells people they're forgiven, um, he just does it wherever he is, right? Wherever he, whenever he wants to, on his own authority, he just seems to think he can say, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees get upset about this, and we go, oh, bad Pharisees, they didn't want anyone to be forgiven. Well, the Pharisees actually had ways for you to be forgiven. The problem was there were lots of conditions. You couldn't just go to someone and have them receive life, have them receive healing. They had to go to the temple. They had to go through all these different steps of purification. They had to follow whatever kind of rules the priests laid out for them. And it ended up practically creating a system where there was no way. Right? There's no way these people were getting back in the system. And what really makes them mad is Jesus kind of replaces that whole system they built up. In a sense, he replaces the temple when he goes around and says, hey, you're forgiven. Welcome back to God's people. Welcome back into the community. Receive life and healing and wholeness. And they go, that's not how it works. You can't just go to people and do that. You particularly can't just go to those people and do that. Big, big problems. And so one of the Pharisees' problems, I think, is that they can't imagine how Jesus can eat with these people without condoning the kind of life they've been living. Does this mean you're approving of what they've done? You're associating with them? You're identifying with them? Is, this, is, this a, a, is there a threat here of maybe them rubbing off on you? Right? I mean, the company that you keep, if Jesus is only hanging around tax and sinners, I mean, we know how that works. Your friends start to kind of rub off on you. And Jesus, he just doesn't seem to have those, those same concerns here. Um, I think, to be fair, you and I, right, if we really were to try to start accepting people unconditionally, we'd receive the same kind of criticisms, the same cautions, the same concerns. Well, you know if you let those people come in, if you let those people be around you, if you go hang out with those people, that's kind of like you're accepting what they're doing. You're kind of condoning the evil things they've done. Or you know if those people kind of come in, eventually that's going to rub off on you. Eventually that's going to have negative effects on you. You're going to stop caring about holiness and about things of that nature and about doing the right thing. Um, I've got a quote here by a uh, Christian philosopher who uh, has been pretty, pretty uh, pervasive in kind of the, the different Christian schools in the, the air right now. Um, so he's the forefather of a lot of things that are still at work, um, like even the homeschooling kind of project. Um, he says this is a quote, direct quote from this guy. He says, unconditional love means the end of discrimination between good and evil. Hear that? Unconditional love means the end of discrimination between good and evil, right and wrong, better and worse, friend and enemy, and all things else. Whenever anyone asks you to love unconditionally, they are asking you to surrender unconditionally to the enemy. But the enemies of God's justice and God's law, a fundamental law and order, must not be loved. To love them is to condone their evil. To love them is to condone their evil. You cannot associate with them. You cannot show any kind of love or grace to them. You are surrendering everything about the kingdom, everything about what God has desired from us. This was the Pharisees' problem. They could not accept that Jesus could possibly so radically go uh, enjoy these people's presence. 
Um, and again, I think you have these two pendulums. You have on one side who say, no, 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 these people, God hates them and we hate them. We can't go be near them. On the other side, you have people who say, rightly so. I mean, this is who this guy's talking about. People who would go the other side and it's like, well, who cares about anything? Tax collectors, whatever, they're tax collectors. They're not that bad, right? You start to condone the actions that they have. Jesus, though, finds a middle, a middle way, a, a third way. Jesus is able to balance delicately this, this theme, this idea, this, this ministry strategy of accepting unconditionally, but also leading people to life. He has this transforming presence. Um, one scholar calls it a contagious holiness. So what happens for Jesus is you have impurity and you have cleanness. And how the ancient world thought is they thought if those two things interacted, the impurity would transfer and infect, right? It's contagious. And you'd have two impure things. That's why like a priest who touches a dead body, right? They're now impure because that was impure. And now if I who am clean touch that, now I'm impure. I'm infected by what's around me. Jesus, though, radically reverses this. I mean, he completely stops this flow of impurity and says that's not how it works. For Jesus, love is more contagious than sin. For Jesus, holiness is more contagious than sin. Jesus says, the flow of impurity works backwards with me. Watch what happens even in Matthew 9, just right here. Look in verse 20. Matthew 9, verse 20. I mean, the the narrative, this story, if you really understand how the ancient world thought, this is so shocking. This reverses everything they thought. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up from behind him. So this is a girl who is impure, cursed by God. Okay, she's not allowed to be around anybody. If you even get close to her, you are impure. You are, for a time, set apart from the people of God and the presence of God. She's there. She comes up behind Jesus, and she touches the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, for an ancient person, this now makes Jesus impure. It's unfortunate. He didn't see her. She touched him without him thinking. doesn't matter, though. The impurity has transferred from her to him. But this is not what happens. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Do you catch what just happened there? Jesus' cleanness transferred into her. It worked the other way. It worked the other way. When Jesus goes and eats with tax collectors and sinners, he accepts them because he knows that his presence is a transforming presence. He knows his holiness will rub off on them. He's not worried about being affected by them. They're going to be affected by him. And he's able to go and love freely and radically. People who follow Jesus are people who've learned that holiness is more contagious than sin. They're not afraid of sinners. They're not afraid of sin. They know that that is how the flow of life works. Jesus' love, his grace, his holiness is more powerful than other people's sin, than their bad habits, than their lifestyles. There's a radical, radical way of thinking that Jesus embodies for us here in the Gospels. I think one of the ways we get off track and the Pharisees got off track is by misunderstanding God's holiness. So they thought for God to be holy meant he could not be around sin. It was this kind of intolerance of imperfection. And as soon as you had that blood, right, as soon as you sinned, you were cast out completely from his presence, completely from his people. Jesus, though, is holy, but seeks out those people. I mean, have you ever really dealt with that in your mind? We kind of throw those phrases around sometimes, right? Like God can't be in the presence of sin. Perhaps the better way to say is sin can't be in the presence of God. Which is why that separation is usually there. But what happens when God shows up? One of two things. The person leaves 
or the sin leaves. Holiness is more contagious than sin is. When those two things meet, the flow is a one-way flow from God to the sinner. When the sin departs. We often think of holiness and love, God's holiness and God's love, or God's wrath and God's grace, as like binary opposites. It's one or the other. God loves at some points and hates at some points. God loves some people and hates some people. But, but what this has done is it's taken holiness, this idea that God is holy, out of the context of a relationship, out of the context of a covenant relationship, and into the law court. So God is now just a judge. He's just a, a judge of these cold, arbitrary laws. And you, you, you break one law, and then you're just punished, Right? Just go sit and rot in a jail. Who cares? You broke the law. There's no motion. There's no hardness at all. In reality, the scriptures portray God in covenant with his creation. He's in a relationship, a love relationship with his creation. He created it. It's good. He wants the best for it. He chose a people, created them, and wants the best for them. And when they sin, this is not them just breaking a law. This is like a child who spurns his parents. And might experience his parents' wrath in that moment. But watch very closely. The wrath is because of the parent's love. It's the parent's deep passion for that child that causes the change in experience. Holiness and love for God, they work for the same goal. They work for the same goal. Think of, so there was a, uh, one of my favorite authors was on a radio show once. And he was being questioned by an atheist. And she was trying to kind of, He's real smart with him and kind of give it to him. He's a Bible scholar, brilliant guy. And she, she's talking about how nitpicky and judgmental Christians are and have they have all these backwards rules, right? And one of them was adultery. You know, stone an adulterer, uh, can't get divorced and remarried and all these kind of rules. And the Bible scholar was kind of playing dumb. He was like, I don't remember any of those rules. What are you talking about? And she wouldn't have it. She's like, are you kidding me? She's like, you're one of the smartest people in the world. Of course you know what these rules are. And she started bringing out passages. And the Bible scholar did this. It was brilliant. I've never seen the lines before. He goes... Oh, that's what you're talking about. I didn't recognize it because of your tone. He said, when I read those rules, it's after a loving God has created a world that he loves, after he's freed his people from Egypt out of grace with nothing for them to do, after he's given them an inheritance, after he's chosen them on his own volition, and after he says, this is where life is found. He says, I see now, we're reading the same words, but we're not reading them the same way. The tone is completely different for me. He says, when I read it, this idea of being holy, this idea of God's law, is a way of his loving us. It's a way of him leading us to life. That's why the Jewish people would write these love poems about the law. It wasn't, again, this cold, hard thing for them. It was a loving parent who said, hey, here's where life is to be found. And if you, if you break these, you're going to feel kind of this wrathful expression of me because I want the best for you. I want the best for all of creation. There's another pastor who was being interviewed by another atheist. And she had just read the book of Amos. I don't know if you've read the book of Amos. It's an intense book. God's pretty upset in Amos. He's killing people. He's judging people. It seems kind of primitive and backwards to some, some modern folks. And she was going through and saying, this is just ridiculous. I, this, this God looks so primitive, so tribalistic, so angry and upset. How could anyone possibly believe in this God? He's not a loving God. He's this hateful, judgmental God. And the pastor said he was just quiet. He just didn't say anything the whole conversation. And at the very end of the conversation, he started to get up. And she said, I don't see how a loving God could act this way. And he said, I got up real quietly and said, ma'am, I don't see how a loving God couldn't act this way. God creates, and creation and Amos has gone so wrong. And it stirs up this passion in God, right? Not because he hates creation, but because he loves it and wants to see it the way he intended it. 
judgment, holiness, those things are an expression of God's love for creation, of his plan for the world. They're not binary opposites. See, the Pharisees could never get this. And and they had a hard time understanding how Jesus comes and how he can still be holy when he goes to be with these people. Um, Barton, a scholar, he says this, The way of Jesus is different. For him, holiness is not a matter of separation from sinners. Holiness, for Jesus to be holy doesn't mean he's far away from sinners. They have no place in his presence. For Jesus, holiness is a separation from anything that inhibits full commitment to the God who's drawing near to sinners. In fact, even if you do the hard, like, leg school work, I think you'll find we've kind of misinterpreted even the word holiness throughout the scriptures. We've done so much about it being set apart, and we're going back and looking now, and perhaps the better way to think about it is commitment. That's why Israel praises God for his holiness. Holiness has the same, like, loyal uh, semantic range to it. God is holy in the sense that he is one way decided to rescue his creation, to love his creation, to save his people, Israel. His holiness goes hand in hand and hand in hand hand in hand in the Old Testament with his chesed, his steadfast love. They're one and the same thing. They work together. Israel can praise God for his holiness in the same way they can praise God for his love. It's not this thing that drives fear into their hearts. It's this thing that drives confidence into their hearts that God will be good and be loving. When Jesus shows up, his holiness is not something that pushes back on sinners. His holiness is what caused him to go to sinners. Because he knows it's going to be contagious. He knows he's driving out this sin. So watch the middle way. Jesus doesn't say, God hates you, I hate you. And he doesn't say, hey, that's cool, be a tax collector, who cares? Jesus says, let me come, show you my love and my grace. Earn your trust so that you know I have your best interest at heart. And then let me lead you to life. Because this is not how life should be lived. This is not where you'll find the fullness of life that God has desired for his creation. Jesus' presence is a transforming presence. Notice, he doesn't leave the tax collector as he is. Matthew's radically transformed in a disciple. These people that Jesus stepped in the community are radically transformed. There's this third way between um, completely excluding people and then completely accepting everything. Right? You accept unconditionally. You get people to, to know that you trust them, or to know that they should trust you, that you have their best interests at heart. And then you, you can walk together toward life. Um, flip with me real quick to Matthew 23. So Jesus has these controversies throughout his ministry. In Matthew 23, probably one of the most intense passages in the Gospels. Uh, so Jesus is known for being a very gentle, meek, and mild kind of guy. He has his moments. Uh, in Matthew 23 is one of these moments. Again, you might be surprised. Who does he express his venom to, his wrath to? I mean, this is um, harsh... Probably, again, I think this is the harshest speech you'll ever get out of Jesus in the Gospels. It's to the religious people. It's not to the people who have royally screwed up and everyone agrees about it. I mean, no one in the world looked at tax and like, that's a, that's a stand-up guy. <laughs> Jesus never does speeches like this to them. He goes and hangs out with them. He gets the tagline of a friend of drunks and gluttons. That's what people call Jesus. I mean, why aren't we accused of things like that? Why don't we have such a love for an association with people who are radically far from God that people accuse us of that? That's the model that Jesus gives us. There's a friend of drunk, drunks and, and gluttons. He said in Matthew and in, in Luke. But Matthew 23, here he goes against the scribes and Pharisees, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He says, where the door should be open for people to come in, you have closed them. And he is, he's, he's upset. Of, he's, in the theological world, he's pissed off. Right? 
I mean, that's as exact as you can get, I think, here. He's upset. Where the door should be open, you've shut it in people's faces. And it's going to be bad for you, he says. Not for the tax collection sinners who were lost and who the physician wanted to go find. But you kept from them. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Again, the Pharisees had, they would have responded and said, we have ways for them to go in. This and 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 this. And Jesus is no, no, no. You've practically shut them off. When you build up all these conditions of them ever even receiving fellowship with you. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. This is even more intense in the Greek, if you could <laughs> think of that. Notice again, he says, how hard do you have to work for one convert with all the things you've built up? <laughs> you have to travel across the, the stinking world to get one person Finally, to walk through all the loopholes you've created. He said, and even when you do that, they're worse off than you are because of how you've, how you've gotten them, because of the, the kind of uh, theology that you have given to them. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is going to radically go after the people that no one else goes after. He's going to be willing for people to misalign him and say, oh, I guess he must be a drunk too. I guess he must be a glutton too. Look at him over the tax collectors. He throws all caution to the wind. He runs out of these people, and he reserves venom for anyone who would ever shut one door to keep the love and holiness of God from seeking those who are far away from him. Jesus has this attractive holiness in the Gospels, this contagious holiness in the Gospels. So a couple of ways that we might practice this at FCQ, okay? One is we want to, at FCQ, practice incarnational ministry. That means we want to go out to people. We have intentionally tried to flip the script on what church is like okay um we don't want sunday morning to be time of evangelism we don't think that's how church was intended we think sunday morning is time for believers we come and we worship that's why i don't apologize when i preach for over 30 minutes right or I use big words or we think really hard or ask questions right i never feel the need to apologize because that's what we're here for we're the church we're coming to build each other up to get energized so that we can go out in the world on monday and tuesday and wednesday and thursday and friday we want to flip the script there. We want to not set up the condition, right? Accepting initially. We don't want the condition to be, you have to come to us to hear the gospel. Does that make sense? Particularly in the world that we're starting to live in, a post-Christendom world, where the church is less and less a centerpiece of society, less and less people are going to come to church to hear the gospel. And more and more, we're going to need to go out to them. So we want to go minister, right, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, those kind of things. We want to be a multi-site church, during the week, right? All over the, all over the place, all over Houston, taking the kingdom, taking the good news of the gospel, imbibing, embodying Jesus' transforming presence um, with those who are far off. We don't want to put extra biblical rules on people, right? So again, there is a way of life that Christ has called us to. That's a, this is a pitfall of accepting initially. Accepting initially does not mean anything goes in that sense. There is a way of life that Christ has called us to. But it's a way of life that comes after we accept and love. And it's a way of life that, that avoids extra biblical rules, right? So the church has been real bad about doing this, right? You're not allowed to play cards. You're not allowed to dance. You're not allowed to play drums in the church. I mean, we've blown that up already. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. You can't say that word. You can't wear that, right? You can't listen to this kind of music. I mean, we build up all these kind of, these kind of little silly things. And we want to be intentional about saying, let's not add on anything. Let's not shut any doors where they should be open. Does that make sense? 
This is not a watering down of anything. I, I, if you've heard anything this morning, I hope you're not hearing that. It's not a watering down of anything. Jesus radically calls these men, these women, to full discipleship, to picking up their cross, to following him with everything they've gotten. But that's not the condition for him approaching them. That's not a condition for him fully accepting them, fully being in relationship, fellowship with them. I want us to realize, so one, practice incarnational ministry. Two, we want to realize two things, that everybody is not okay, and everything is not okay. And that's okay. Everybody is not okay, and everything is not okay, and that's okay. So first, when you're on this side of the pendulum, and God hates you, and we hate you, if you're not like us, what that creates is a, a, a situation of secrecy and pretendness. Because you cannot be honest about what you struggle with. Because you never know when you cross that line they kick you out like they've kicked other people out. And so you pretend. And the church should not be a place where you pretend. The church should be a place where you can be honest. We can say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is how ugly my life is right now. This is my doubts. If you can't be honest with the church, I mean, where can you be honest? We need to not pretend that everybody is okay. And it's okay that everyone's not okay. We have a, a kind of a catchphrase we've used here in the past, which is, it's okay to not be okay. I mean, it's, if any part of your life if that's true, right now, among these people, it's okay to not be okay. Guess what? We're all not okay. We all have serious things wrong. And we've all found the grace of Christ, his love covering us in that. One, there's two kind of ways to, to think about church. One is um, a bounded set and one is a well set. So think of animals, farm animals, okay? Farming is something I know about as much about as biology, so bear with me. But there are two ways, right, that you can kind of fence in and keep animals. One is with a fence, Right? So you make like the square or rectangle, or if you're like a creative farmer, I don't know, you do some shapes. But the animals stay inside the fence, right? They can't get out. The other way is to put a well in the middle of your property. And the idea would be animals need to drink. There's a source of life there. And they're going to stay kind of around that area. They're going to all kind of gravitate toward that area. And that's kind of how we've tried to build FC Cubed up. Not this hard and fast, this is how you're in, this is how you're out. Here are the fences. But here's our goal. Some of us are farther along than others. Some of us are closer to the well. Some of us are farther away. Some of us don't really know we're on our way to the well yet. Some of us turn around every now and then. But we're all headed the same direction. We want to head there together. We've all found the source of life. What happens when you create a bounded set, when you put a fence around who's in and who's out, is you end up having to pick sins. So what's acceptable and what's not acceptable? And it usually turns out to be socially acceptable sins. So sins that, that society deems disgusting, right, obviously on the outside. But gluttons and people who are greedy, sure, they're on the inside. And you end up, I mean, really, if you were to really sit down and think about it, you end up doing these silly, silly things about um, what kind of sins are okay, what kind of sins are not okay, how aware of them you have to be, how over them you have to be, those kind of things. And really what we've done is we've taken some really big sins in the scriptures and minimized them. Greed and, and gluttony, I mean, greed in particular, and we've elevated some other sins to get mentioned like three or four times. And those are like the, there's no way you could possibly be on our side of the fence. While we're all over here with all of our money, right? Just as greedy as I ever could be. I mean, we, we have to pick and choose sins to who's on the inside of the fence, who's on the outside of the fence. I don't think that's a good policy. Um, no one leans against the cross, another way you could say it, right? You don't get to lean up here and go, hey, you're in, come on in, right? You stay back a little bit. No, you kneel in front of the cross, and you look back and say, I think there's room for you. You look back and say, hey, I was a pretty miserable person, and I found life here. Maybe you can find life here, too. 
There's this, this aspect, attitude of humility that you receive. So everybody's not okay, and then everything's not okay. So the end of that saying, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Does that make sense? It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. There's this expectation that you're going to grow, that you're going to go towards Christ. You're going to um, join on this path of discipleship. Now, I don't think you and I need to speak into people's lives without being invited. So I don't think it's your place, if you're not in a community with somebody, to, to try to tell them about all the things they've done wrong in ways that they might be better Christians. Does that make sense? But I do think you desperately need to give people that permission. You need to find a group of people, and you need to give them that permission. You need to invite them to say, hey, I want you to speak into my life, speak hard truths into my life. Think about, okay, so you go out and buy a big screen TV, and someone comes up to you and they go, hey, I'm not sure that was the best use of your money. Can I see the receipt for that? How much was that? Can I, can I have access to your bank account? I want to run the percentages here. Really? You're giving that much charity? And you're buying this TV? I mean, imagine your reaction to that. You'd be like, who are you? Get out of here, right? I mean, are you kidding me? Leave me alone. You have no right. And I think that's true. I don't think you should be that person. Please don't be that person. <laughs> but here's what I'll say. Let me beg you to tell somebody, you talked to me about my TV. You ask me about my TV. You make sure that you protect me, look out for me. Again, why? These, these rules, these ways of life, they're not, they're not to destroy our life. They're not to keep us from enjoying anything. It's to help us define life. We desperately need people to speak into our lives, speak hard truth into our lives, but it has to be invited. It has to be the situation of trust, right? You can't go say that to someone who doesn't trust that you have their exact best interests out for you in, in their hearts. If you have any kind of doubt that they just want to kind of tear you down or they just want to think they're better than you or anything like that, that goes nowhere. It doesn't work. But if you're in this covenant relationship where you've said, let's agree to walk toward Christ together. I trust you. You trust me. Then all of a sudden, you have a relationship where you might be able to mutually grow together in Christ in a way that you, I don't think, are able to if, if you're just running by yourself. Um, you're really good at lying to yourself. Does that make sense? You need other people to be able to, to speak in your life. But you've got to invite them. And don't do that if you haven't been invited, if you don't have that kind of relationship. So we want to realize everybody's not okay, everything's not okay. And then the third one here is something we practice every week. We want to celebrate open communion. We think this is the, the, just the most perfect sign of what's happening in the Gospels and what Jesus has called us to do. Um, so throughout church history, people have tried to erect all these different things that keep people from taking communion with them. You're not a part of our church. You don't believe this. You don't do this. You have this in your past. Those kind of things. I mean, it really ranges the whole boundary of, of what's going on here, of how you're um, excluded from communion. And really, you can kind of paint historical theology about the Eucharist, about communion, in terms of like, who exactly do we tell them not to come? What rules do we put up about you can't receive, you can't receive, you can't receive, you can't receive? And in that, FCQ practice was called open communion, which means we think it's our job to invite, not to debar. And we, we, we think there's kind of crazy idea that someone who's willing to come worship Christ, that's what we do in, in communion, and someone who wants to commit their lives to him, that Christ's holiness might just rub off on them and not us or Jesus. That he's not intimidated by that, and we shouldn't be either. And that the Christ you see in the gospel seems like he doesn't ever tell anyone to go away from his table. Seems like if they go away, it's on their own volition. He doesn't exclude anybody, but people sure enough exclude themselves. And so we, we think it's our job to invite people, not to, to, to bar people. Um, Calvin, John Calvin, who's known for being kind of an uptight guy, if you know anything about 
theology, um, and known for being very like church discipline, right? He's rigid. He has his ways. He wants to do things a certain way. Gets it around the spot, I think, with communion. He says this. At this meal, all were invited, never matter class or race or gender, all come as equals, for Jesus is the host. But the more or a barbarian come among us, whoever, inasmuch as they are human, they come as our brother or our sister and our neighbor. He says, I'm nervous about those who insist that only the pure, purged of all sin, can come to the Lord's table. He says such a dogma would debar all those who were ever on the earth from the use of the sacrament. And he says, are you really going to start picking out sins? You're really going to say only good people are allowed to come? I don't think anyone's going to be becoming at that point. He says, those who think it's sacrilege to partake the Lord's bread with the wicked are in this more rigid than Jesus or Paul. For when he exhorts us to pure and holy communion, Paul does not require that we examine others or that everyone should examine the church, but that each man should examine his own heart. I mean, think of Jesus on the Gospels. Again, he never excludes anyone from his table. People excuse themselves because they can't be around his holiness, right? Sin can't stand the presence of God. It's not that God can't stand the presence of sin. I think we've we've flipped the script there. Um, And then Paul, right, in 1 Corinthians 11, one of the passages used to exclude people from communion, he says, examine yourself. He says, you need to see whether you are coming for the right reasons to worship Christ, to find life in him, to worship him. Um, I can't get over the, the, the story we read in Acts 27, where Paul is on a ship. Do you remember this in Acts 27? There's a shipwreck. And Paul has communion with the people on the ship, right? He breaks bread and gives thanks to God with them. And it's, it's prisoners and it's Roman soldiers. It's all kind of horrible, evil people. And Paul doesn't give a, a gospel call. He doesn't say, repent these three ways and then you can come have communion with me. And I tried, when we reading that story, I tried so hard to find a commentator who had some skill who could tell me that wasn't communion he was doing on the ship. That he, it was just an accident that Luke used the exact same words. That it wasn't meant to be any kind of parallel or anything like that. And I couldn't find anyone with any sort of skill. They said, you know what? We don't understand it, but Paul just does this, this weird, just out of nowhere, he does this communion meal with them after they're saved from the storm. And it's people who should not have been at the table, according to them. Paul says, hey, let's break bread. I want to worship the God who saved us from the storm. You're invited to come and participate. Um, Placker, William Placker says, a meal shared with Jesus, it seems, is a place where just about anyone might be found, except those too proud or fussy to join him. Some may exclude themselves, but Jesus excludes no one. A community that faithfully attends to the narratives of the crucified Jesus in the gospel cannot be a community that excludes. So we practice open communion. Again, this is not a anything flies. This is a all are welcome. And at Christ, at his cross, in his love, people are transformed. That's where we receive wholeness and fullness of life. We don't want to close doors that should be open. Paul says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you to the praise of God. And by God's grace, that's key. We want to be people who, who work and do our best to embody that. To be able to accept others and have them find life in Christ because Christ accepted us and we found life in him. Let's pray together.